Welcome to the Centre for Army Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Dean Cannon, and I'm charged with heading up the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army's Centre of Excellence for Leaders and Leadership Development. In this episode, we talk to Brigadier James Cook, OBE. Brigadier Cook commissioned into the Royal Regiment of Artillery in 1995. He has served most of his regimental duty in 2-9 Commando Regiment and commanded 105 Regiment Royal Artillery. He completed the Combat Arms Fighting Systems course at the Royal College of Military Sciences in 1999. Has instructed soldiers in training and been a company commander at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. As a member of the General Staff, he has focused on the future of warfare as Assistant Head of Concept in Army Headquarters. Being Assistant Head for the Career Management of the General Staff in the Army Personnel Centre and is now Director of the Work Developing the Future of the Army's Personnel and Talent Management, Programme Castle. Brigadier Cook is the Chairman of Army Rugby Union and a member of the Rugby Football Union Board. In 2016, he was appointed an ABE for services to Army Sport. He is the Chair of the Royal Artillery Historical Committee and a Chair of both Governors and the Parent Teacher Association. He completed his PhD in 2020 on how the British Army transformed in the First World War. Brigadier, thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak to the Centre for Army Leadership to pass on your thoughts on leadership through the lens of your career and your current role as Head of the Army's Personnel and Talent Management Change Programme, Castle. Dean, that's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I'll start, if I may, by asking, what does leadership mean to you? It's a great question, isn't it? A really simple way to start. So for me, it's doing the right thing. It's just doing the right thing. I think if you want to, you can break that into two places. That's doing the right thing morally, making those tough decisions. But it's also doing the right thing sort of conceptually, knowing how to make the right decisions in tactics and training. But to me, I I like boiling things down to a central purpose and doing the right thing wins for me. I think you can pass that on as as a tenant and I think you can live by doing the right thing. My own reflections when I've been asked to boil it down comes down to a really simple strapline as a, as a CEO I settled on, do what you know to be right, stop what you know to be wrong, and that strapline kind of caught with people. And I think there's probably some, some commonality in that. It covers all bases. Yeah, there's a similarity there. And I, I think it's something shouldn't be distilled down, but leadership is so personal, it's only right that it's what you think it is. And to me, doing the right thing sort of works well for me. And it, it's, it certainly has so far. And how would you describe yourself as a leader or how have other people described you? Um, So I personally describe myself as a leader as average at best with a career that has been quite different in different stages. I I can tell you how I think colleagues describe me because they've told me my 360 feedback uh, and they've used words like relaxed, not very funny, which disappointed (laughs) me. Uh, I think I can be funny, maybe at the wrong times. Uh, Overtly positive, which is more negative than you might think. Uh, but I'm energetic uh, and I'm an ideas person, not a detail person. And I think you sort of know it, but until you hear it back, lots of, you go, okay, that really is me. And the overtly positive was difficult because I felt that was a really nice way to interact. And I took some counselling to work what that really meant and then try to address it. Because sometimes overt positivity can just be a little bit wearing on people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes a bit more pragmatism is a better way of doing things. So you, you've got to turn it down. You've got to know when to play that or not. And I'm, I'm happy with those, less for the funny bit. Absolutely. You know, there's probably quite a lot of those facets that have been used to describe you that other people could find challenging. 
essentially, yeah. even if they feel very positive to yourself or to other people, and how you apply those different aspects of your personality to different members or parts of a team can get the best out of them. Uh, very much so, dear. I, you know, I'm, I'm blessed that the team I work with is completely whole force from a fantastic contractor in Deloitte with a civil, strong civil servants, uh, regular reserve, FGRS, uh, those on additional duty commitment contracts. If I come into a meeting with too much energy and positivity, for those who are not feeling that way about it, it, it can be, well, firstly, annoying, I imagine. And secondly, if they just don't see it that way, mm-hmm. immediately we're not on the same page. So I've had to learn to temper that. Uh, I've had to learn to temper that just because I see it that way is obviously not the only way to see it. And I think that's been really that's been a really good use of 360 for me in the last five years since I joined the general staff. Uh, and I might say I wasn't a believer, but that sh- my, my wife tells me it's maybe better. Therefore, I think it's doing a good thing. And so, experience over your career and over the years means that you can recognise different aspects of your leadership character and personality and apply them in different ways at different times depending on the situation yeah i think certainly as a staff officer especially with looking after a big team who interacts with lots of different teams you can't take the same approach every time and you've got to go right what am i walking into here what do we need to get what is the culture of the team we're looking into and what they want and then work out right what's the approach and sometimes overt positivity is definitely not right sometimes it is i think what i've learned in the last couple of years certainly running program castle is that it's not the same every time. Uh, it's not quite mirroring, but it is often trying to mirror. So you're, you're in the same space as, as the people you're dealing with. And perhaps you might have a consistent message, but which needs to be delivered in different ways to different groups. Yes, yeah, so we, we deliver Programme Castle broadly to junior NCOs messes up to the Executive Committee of the Army Board. So it's a pretty wide spectrum. And apart from the detail being different and what is compelling to different people, you know, their motivations are different. You know, it's very hard to explain the benefits of Program Castle to a senior leadership of the Army. Um, so so they, they have an understanding about transformation and change, whereas if you were speaking to ICSE, they have a very specific understanding of what it is and what it isn't. So yeah, very much shape it. We're all shaped in some way by our upbringing, our parents, wider family and friends. What do you think were the particular influences on your development as a leader growing up? So I was blessed with two wonderful, loving parents who, who still support me. But what they did that was brilliant was get me into sport, team sports. Mm-hmm. Particularly for me, it was rugby. Uh, I was an average rugby player most of my career. Still, still am very average. But what it allowed me to do was understand winning, losing, when it's good to win, when it's okay to lose. Uh, and also I was privileged to be allowed to be a captain of a lot of rugby teams from quite an early age. And I got, through experience, quite good at being a captain. And I probably played in some teams that I wasn't quite good enough to be in, but I was a good captain. And that was interesting because it showed you the, it showed you the advantage of leadership and when it was useful. Um, we might come back to that rugby thread a bit later. Do you think then everything you've learned on leadership has been learned or do you think some of it was innate? Do you think leaders are, are born or made? So, Dean, I'm pretty hard over on this. I think they're 100% made and it's all about nurture. And I know that's quite an extreme view. I say that because I've seen people who probably didn't think they were become wonderful leaders and people who thought they were by divine right and upbringing who turned out to be lousy leaders. I think you can turn the vast majority of people into good leaders. And the reason the army has so many good or excellent leaders is we spend a lot of time on their military education. I don't think anybody has a right to be a good leader because of where they're born and their privilege, as it were. So, so I'm in the camp of we can make people good leaders and we can make everybody better leaders. 
and experience drives that forward. And the Centre for Family Leadership would absolutely support that view. And I'd probably add practicing leadership once you've been taught it and then reflecting on it yourself is also fundamental to cementing better proof behaviors. All, all day long, the, the best leaders I've worked for or with are the ones who never stop learning or trying to be better by listening to podcasts like this, by reading some books, by engaging with people outside their remit to see how they do things. And do you think there is one standout character or trait that is required of a great leader? I think it's hard because it's about the context of that leadership. But if I was going to pick one, it would be compassion. And, and maybe that's not where people expect me to go. I think leaders who show compassion at the right time probably set themselves apart. I mean, there's so much else they need to do. But the good ones who've got that compassion as part of emotional intelligence are just that little bit better. And that little bit makes a big difference. The right level of compassion played the right way, humbly, is, is so beneficial to good leadership, I think. Yeah. I think most people would probably recognize it as a subset of emotional intelligence. And certainly the discussions about emotional intelligence and how impactful it is, is front and center of a huge amount of the work that we're doing yeah. at the moment as well. Do you think there's something that makes leadership in the British Army particularly unique, either from other leadership roles more widely or against other nations, armies or other services? I think there is. So military leadership is broadly similar in the Western armies. And of course, what drives it is the fact that we ask the very most of our people mentally and physically under huge pressures to make good, quick decisions. I think our leadership style relies on mental and physical resilience that's beyond the norm. And I think, therefore, that gives us a leadership style that is quite bold, but has the compassion. But in most circumstances, the right people are happy to make the big, difficult decisions. I find it hard to compare with other nations in our militaries because culture is so different. And if the culture is different, the leadership is different. But that also means, I think, the reason we're quite good is because we work so well with our nations because we are culturally aware. So whether we're working with the, the Americans, the French, the Canadians, Australians, I think we meld in their teams well. Do you think that that reputation of the British Army as a leader on leadership is still justified and still preeminent amongst others? Yeah, I, I think we really are. Now, now, some of our listeners might go, well, prove it or show me it. But whenever we've had to, we have. And some of the campaigns we've been in the last generation have been very difficult and challenging. But I think the leaders have stood up and led and led well and been accountable. I think it's important that we have a center for army leadership, that five years ago we wrote the doctrine on leadership that is in all our training and professional military education from junior soldier to one star. And I, I don't know of another Western army that does it as well or as much as we do. I think we also do it with enough compassion and humility. So we all get its importance. We all know we're different. So it's hard to know why we're different. It's probably our cultural background that makes it, or the culture of the army. But I'm, I'm very happy that our leadership is in a very good place. I think we are broadly representative of society as much as we can be, and that allows us to be naturally inclusive leaders. And we're getting better at that all the time. Yeah. You mentioned different styles of leadership for different roles in your life. Within just your military career, have you had to consciously adjust how you approach leadership depending on your role and the actual teams you're leading? Yes, I certainly have. And especially reflecting back right now, I've almost had three stages in my career. My earlier career was as a commando gunner where 
I look back on it now, foolishly, it was about a big Paris mock and a really ridiculous Green Beret and lots of badges. And it was about physical attainment. And I was okay at that. You know, a bit of vigor and a bit of excitement. We get you a long way. But I got unpicked on that when I became a major. And I suddenly realized it wasn't about the physical leadership as much and just follow me. There was lots more to that. I say in the middle part of my career, uh, I probably tried to overcompensate for that by stepping away from that to try and maybe over-intellectualize it. And I think also as I changed from major to lieutenant colonel, that happened whilst I was serving at the academy here. That really helped reset the moral, physical, conceptual foundation of my leadership, which brings me to this latter stage of my career, which I'm almost surprised I'm here, but, but delighted, rest assured, where I think I've got a bit more of a balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my wife played a part in that by putting on a better route. And my entry into general staff and some leadership I uh, was given changed that. I was working for the then Brigadier uh, Roly Walker, uh, one of your fellow podcast uh, contributors, and he really set me up to enter the general staff in a better way. And, and again, he talked about responsibility, leadership, delegation. So I, I think I've had three distinct parts of my career where I've, I've had to quite rightly adjust that staff. Mm-hmm. And you touched on self-reflection. We have mentioned it a couple of times. We probably learn more from experiencing poor leadership or our own failures even more so. Have there been moments or appointments where you feel or that you were even told that you'd failed in leadership and what did you learn from it and how did you deal with it? So I absolutely agree. You get far more out of those lessons where you realize it hasn't gone well. Uh, That young commando captain on board an amphibious ready group in the Mediterranean Many summers ago, I had a fantastic Royal Marine Company commander called Colby Corrin, who sat me down and sort of gave me that proper, I think you're quite good. You just need to prove to me you are quite good. And then he said some words we probably can't put on the the (laughs) podcast, which were quite direct. And it was the first time I sort of sat up and went, oh, I was not good at preparing for the next exercise because I was happy to just to jog along, next exercise, run around, have great fun, but I wasn't preparing. And he said, you've got to prepare. And preparing is a talent in its own right, the ability and the wherewithal by which you prepare. And his point was, take it seriously and know when to take it seriously. That was a shock. And he was quite right. So that made me a better senior captain. I then, and there's a theme here, my first report as a major, uh, and I hope this doesn't make people giggle too much, was a glorious B minus dev no, which is pretty tragically low. And and as a former career manager, you don't see many B minus dev no's. It's a pretty categorical, what on earth are you doing? That came from an exchange officer who quite rightly sort of by the book went, this is where you are, take it seriously. And I was having a great time. I was loving it, but I I wasn't taking it as seriously as I should have done. Uh, And thanks to him, he actually, that was a definitely sit down shock moment. And those two two incidents are only four years apart. And those things shook me into, if I take this seriously, I think it'll work out better. And I turned it around pretty quickly. It it also coincided with me meeting my uh, then-to-be future wife who also had a similar line of, right, take it seriously and we'll go somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And I'm assuming you've been back into the records now to delete that. Oh, it's all gone. Report. You can't find so it anywhere. Can no, no, found. Yeah. yeah, no one needs to. Yeah. <laughs> Have you had any opportunities to be improved or commented on by people more junior to you on how you were doing stuff? Yes. And you know what? Again, it's probably some of the most useful leadership lessons. So, so I was lucky enough to come on one for a commando battery, a, a small unit, naval gun, fast sport, forward air control. But it was blessed with supremely physically fit and mentally robust and technically professional soldiers. 
as most of the army is, but that was a particularly high functioning. And of course, they had no problem with giving me some advice. But it was usually technically and tactically spot on. So it was very easy to receive. And within it was hidden a few behavioral things as well. Mm -hmm. Sir. So yeah, that was a quite interesting because you feel as a batch of commander, you're quite important. In the grand scheme of things, you're not. And to the NCOs who've been at Batchelor a lot longer than you, it was, it was what was lovely. They were giving me advice because they wanted me to be better because they genuinely trusted me to be better. Yeah. So, yes, I, I think that's really valuable. Uh, and that, that wasn't speaking truth to power. That was just generally good tactical, technical, professional advice that I took on board because I trusted them. And I've tried, certainly in the latter stages of my career, to encourage people more junior to me to come and speak to me and tell me what I'm like. It doesn't mean it's not a slight surprise the first time they do it. And then you really realize the value of it and you encourage it. And you realize that they are doing it for me, not for themselves. Actually, they're doing it for the organization, the units, or to make the whole thing better. It's really uh, refreshing and fascinating and way to go about business. It's very powerful because, of course, they naturally come from a different generation because they're younger. They see it in a slightly different way. And it's very compelling when a younger cohort have the confidence to say, this could be better like this. Uh, and it's, it's in many ways, it's more compelling than when it's your peers. Absolutely. Brigadier, perhaps drawing in particular on your time as a company commander at Sandhurst, what are your observations on modern leadership, its differences, if there are any, and how young people today, particularly in the military, differ in their approach to leading and following now than they did when you saw them at Sandhurst? So, Dina, that's a big question. And, of course, I was here back 2011, 2012, so it has moved on again. I'm not sure if I buy modern leadership. I think leadership is leadership. So my reflection from 2011-12 as a company commander at the academy was that the young men and women still wanted to serve to lead. They were not here for any financial motivation. They were here to serve and to lead. I think many of our former generals long ago would have recognized that. And, and of course, they did things with new technology was slightly different, and they had a slightly different approach in terms of a wider social group. But no, I think the fundamentals was the same. And I'm not sure in the last 20, 30 years of technical revolution whether that's actually changed the heart of the British Army officer or NCO of serving to lead. So I think we're in a good place. Uh, I'm still very lucky to be in touch with many of that cohort who commissioned 11 years ago, and they're doing very well. We even had a reunion only last year to see where they are 11 years hence. And they retain those values. And I think they would reflect on those young officers they've got now is that fundamentally it looks the same because they hold that serve to lead piece. And yes, they're better on some technology than I ever will be, but the heart is still in the right place. Absolutely. I'm not sure if I buy into the generational differences because those who choose to serve to lead, I think have still got the same. But I think we're asking the same questions to ask them to make difficult decisions and lead people through them. And I think they are physically and mentally up for the challenge. And just because they look at new factors like uh, well-being, uh, mental health, I don't think that makes them better or worse. Just it's a new perspective and we're better for it. Seems good. Yeah. I mean, my reflections and my experience also is that all the young soldiers and officers I talk to generally still join the army for the same reasons. They want to serve the nation. They want to lead with purpose, challenge themselves ultimately make the world a better place. And that's probably been pretty consistent reasoning for, for doing so for a very long time. It is. And we forget sometimes how much we ask of them. It is an incredible thing we ask and they want to serve to lead. We haven't broken that. That's a really valuable thing to, to nurture. Absolutely. So you commanded 105 Regiment Royal Artillery, a reserve unit in 
Edinburgh. Were there any particular nuances in leading reserve personnel and do those distinctions for reserve personnel flow through into your work on Castle at the moment? So it was a highlight of my career and I would say absolutely bluntly, I wouldn't be here now if I hadn't commanded a reserve regiment. It suited me, it made me a better officer because it was different. So firstly, you had to lead in a different slightly way because as volunteer reservists, you couldn't just say, be here, do it, which you wouldn't say in the regular army either, but you had to convince them and you were almost leadership through consensus to a degree. But I'd also say is it was really interesting as a leader to see where the talent was. The talent didn't distribute itself as you might see in the regular army. It taught me not to judge a book by its cover. Many reservists stay in one unit for all their career, which even in the regular army is quite rare mm-hmm. because of the geography. And sometimes some of those books might look older and less physically able than I would think was right. But they had such depth of knowledge, skills, experience and good behaviours and were just really good because they might only do 60 days a year, but they'd been doing it for 16 years. It really made a difference. They were far better than I might have given them credit for. And that changed my approach to don't judge these books by its covers. I think also when you're commanding a reserve regiment, you're commanding soldiers and civilians because most of the time they're under your command, they're not in uniform, they're civilian. So you get to see two sides of their life in a way you in the regular army, you don't see often much of their civilian life. And that allows you to have conversation in and out of uniform that are very different. And that's a real privilege because, you know, a section commander in uniform will say one thing, but the section commander, when you meet them in their role doing something else in town, they're still your section commander, but they can have a different view of it then. And that's very valuable. You also had the geographic spread. That, that regiment was on three land masses in two countries that just meant it was hard to physically command it because they weren't in one place. And that was a challenge. So you had to do more pre-COVID, pre-Skype and Zoom hadn't been invented. You had to do far more on email and telephone, which I think, again, physically changed your leadership style. Made me a better officer, gave me far better understanding. It, it was brilliant experience. And were there aspects of leadership command or management as well, I guess, that they were bringing from their civilian lives that you recognize were able to incorporate into the military world? Oh, very much so. They were bringing more from outside the army than maybe from inside it. That gave a different approach to decision-making. It gave a wider context. It gave a broader age range. It gave a better uh, diversity, all of which gave you cognitive diversity, all which made for better decisions. And that's the great thing. So we had an orthopedic surgeon who was a gunner and only wanted to be a gunner, but could still, even in that, that rank, offer some really nice, gentle shifts of focus and balance to the bombardiers that he was working to. Uh, I also had some quite senior executives in defense procurement in the sort of senior captain roles who were, were good managers and good leaders uh, who did it, though, in a more commercial way. And I, I absolutely took from that. And that made me better and it made the unit better. So the example would be is they were more pragmatic planners. They wouldn't look at the overt positivity that I would. They knew the regiment better than I did because they'd been in it longer. And that's the great thing about reserve regiments. Most people stay their whole career in one regiment doing one thing, which gives them that experience. I'd also say the reserves are better at challenging from a junior rank because a junior NCO in the reserves might be a quite senior manager in industry. So probably it's more comfortable to say to a middle manager, since it's like a commanding officer, sir, with respect, blah, blah, blah. And you go, yeah, I think you're right. They could quite charmingly out your uniform when they weren't as a captain, sort of talk to the commanding officer as a sort of equal, going, I think where we need to be is here. And whilst that first time felt uncomfortable, it's really useful. 
it, so it definitely made me a better leader. Uh, I loved my time with 105th up in Scotland uh, and Northern Ireland, and it, it changed my career. Yeah. Really useful. And it's probably a thing that we would like people to do more often in uniform in the regular army as well. If only we could get there. You know, we, we talk about truth to power. We, we, we talk about honest and open leadership, followership. But culturally, it's not where we are. And maybe it took that reserve difference of uniform on, uniform off to allow it to happen. Mm-hmm. But, but that's, you know, that's why we still need the social functions, the sporting engagement, the, the cultural visits that allow you to just break down a few barriers when it's appropriate to have those good conversations, the honest conversations. Because truth to power in uniform often comes across as negative. Truth to power on the sports pitch or the whatever probably comes across a little bit more honest and open, I think. And if you know your team significantly better, and more importantly, they know you, then trust starts to develop. And that's what means you can have open conversations that are beneficial to all. Yeah, I mean, one of your questions earlier, Dean, about you know the fundamentals, it could have been trust. Because if you trust people and they trust you, you can do so many things. And vice versa, if they don't, you're going to turn out a camera going right, and they're, not, they're literally not going to follow. But trust is up at the very top of that leadership tree. Yeah. We'll focus in a little bit on your current role as head of Programme Castle now, if that's okay. You and the Programme Castle team have done a huge amount of work to undertake what is being described as a generational change in how the Army manages its personnel, part of which is the Army Talent Management Framework. How much of that framework incorporates or measures leadership, which is notoriously hard to measure, and is there a view on whether there's a preference for leadership talent over specific skills? So let's get to the big part of that. It measures more leadership than the army is probably comfortable with, but not as much as we'd like. So we are using knowledge, skills, experience, and behaviors. We're bringing the leadership out in the behaviors. We have 12 we've identified that are behaviors that are good for the army, but they're not all equal. So one of the behaviors we have is aggression. And of course, what's interesting is we want aggression in a dismounted close combat soldier. We don't want aggression in a one-star staff officer. So, so it's not always good and bad. It depends on the context. Uh, emotional intelligence, followership, leadership, there's a good list of them. What's interesting why it's become difficult is if I butcher anthropology and sociology and psychology together, it's really hard to see emotional intelligence in another person if they've got more than you. So, so let's say emotional intelligence scale 1 to 10. If I'm level 5 and Dean, you've got level 7... I can only see up to level five, because as far as my emotional intelligence takes me. So we're having to make the behavioral part of the talent framework quite binary. Can you identify emotional intelligence in this person? Yes or no? And there's a little bit of a, I think so, sort of space. And that behavioral piece is still building. But the Army Talent Framework is being written right now. Most of your listeners will be either doing it or about to do it. And I'd say the behaviors also lay into some of the knowledge, skills, experience, so you get a better picture. The real problem is, of course, is the behaviours should be part of the AR process every year, and they're not. We're, we're always really worried about writing them in reports, yeah. which is why we're doing the one-star command assessment, which we might come on to later. But within that, we are going to be adding some objective data to what is a quite rightly subjective process. It should really help boards with those decisions. So it might be about perhaps not trying to find the people that are most emotionally intelligent as one measurement, but who are appropriately suited yes. to a role or a team or a task. Yes. So, so uh, you know, what I learned is having emotional intelligence, lots of it, isn't necessarily better than not. Like aggression, in some stages you need it, in other places you don't. It's about having the right balance and the right appointment. 
you know, if you're into a cultural space overseas dealing with, you know, a huge emotional intelligence is important. If you are programmatically a single person delivering a singleton thing, it is less important. It's still important, but less important. And that might be outweighed by the technical competence to design that thing. And we're providing the boards in the Army Personnel Center a bit more objective analysis to, to manage and understand that. And that's going to be better because programmatically, the whole of CAFS is about saying, this is our people and this is what they can do and what they're good at in an objective way. So we can manage that talent you know, far more precisely. And that means we'll end up putting more people in more jobs that suit them more often. Still really hard, yeah. but it'll help the career managers. And I think from what I've read on it, it's not about identifying those who are particularly talented. It is identifying the talent in everyone and how it's managed best. It's exactly that, Dean. So, so talent isn't equally distributed, fair enough, but everyone has talent. You, you can't be in this army without talent. And everybody's talent can be apportioned to a job we need. What's interesting is people often have talents they don't recognize and people think they're good at something that they're not. So, so my earlier career, I wanted to be in capability and acquisition. I thought technical, that was good. I had a couple of goes, turned out I wasn't so good. I, at the time, I thought PERS wasn't me. I ended up into PERS and it turns out to be good. So that's you know, a live example of I wasn't as good. I mean, I thought I was a good fly half. Turned out I wasn't as well. That's another story for another day. Um, so we're trying to help people identify that. And of course, what will happen is once we've got a bit of history on this, we'll be able to say, look, young sergeant, the following other 15 sergeants in this place came from here and they went there. Your talents, that's a good path. I wonder if you've considered it. And it'll take time to get there. But algorithms, big data is really good at doing that. Yeah. And data measurements are something which for leadership are extremely difficult to nail down. And it would be really useful for all of us if we could put a score on someone on their leadership. How do you think we can best approach that to be better at it, noting it's always going to be subjective to a point. So even the most objective data has a bit of subjectivity in it, but more objective is better. So part of the Army Talent Framework is not just describing you in terms of your knowledge, skills, experience, behavior, but we're also saying that for every single job in the Army. Everybody in the Army this time next year will have a job spec from private soldier to major general. So we'll be able to fit people better, but people should realize that that's what I do. I'm Reports them quite good at it. So I think that gives a better level of understanding of us and our talents. And as I said earlier, that will allow some really varied career paths. When we're looking for the new people to get into cyber warfare or new people to get into some digital comm space, we'll be able to go, the people who are doing it now used to do this. Let's find those people and see if they want to do it. And they might not, but they might go, oh, what an offer. And would you expect, or are you seeing already, leadership to feature in every single one of those new job specs? Or perhaps there are roles where leadership isn't a specified requirement, regardless of how junior or senior that post is? So we are six weeks into a 32-week program, but right now we're seeing the importance of leadership in more appointments than we thought. So I, I'm an interesting example. I don't class myself as a particularly good leader, and I haven't had many leadership command opportunities in my career. But the team I lead now is hugely disparate, vastly different age and gender and very, very different. That takes a different type of leadership, and I think that quite frankly suits the way I am, and we need to find the people who can do that as well. We, we've had a, a culture in the Army where the primacy of command has driven lots of career selections quite rightly, and the primacy of management might also be important, especially as a program manager like I am. I, you know, I've got the privilege of five years running Program Castle, which is really good for the program. What we're bringing in might make that more common. 
the Centre for Rebel Leadership is doing a lot of work at the moment developing area of followership, and perhaps it's going to become as big as leadership in due course. It's a point of interest that perhaps followership replaces leadership as a behavioural attribute in appraisals at some point once we've managed to build up that evidence. So, so I've, I've got quite a history in career management, and I'd say we can't get there soon enough. We really can't because at the moment we, we look at it sort of only in one direction and it's not, it's relationship. And, and some of the best people who've inspired me and changed my leadership style have been working with me, but junior to me. And conversely, I have changed because of the people I'm working to. It's not just about you. And I think followership is far less central and therefore probably better. So yeah, I, I, I'd welcome that. Not, not up to me, but I'd really welcome it. <laughs> You mentioned earlier on your academic work in service as well, and your in-service PhD was on how the British Army transformed in the First World War. Did you learn any lessons in your studies on leadership? And do you think any of them are still applicable today, or have you actually drawn on them in Castle to look at how you might transform personnel systems today? Yes, I really have, and not the way I expected. So, so I didn't do the PhD on purpose. It was a bit of an accident. Which sounds crazy. It's quite a big accident. It was a very big accident. And my wife still, yeah, so there's a lot of, (laughs) yes. Uh, It's 180,000 words of accident. Uh, I didn't really mean to apply. Helen said, yeah, you should. I did. And I didn't expect to get it. And I did. And anyway, here we are now. But what I really took from it, so I was looking at how the British Army fought and got better in the First World War. And my thesis was that leadership was important, technology was important, luck was important. But actually what changed it was training and doctrine. And some of the seminal moments of the British Army was at the end of 1915, which had not gone well. Haig says, I need to change training and doctrine. And he goes out and personally handpicks his best brigade commander and his best GOC, promotes them, Solly Flood and Maxi, and goes, right, I'm investing in you, write better doctrine, train people better. So firstly, I genuinely believe that doctrine and training should be the heart of any organization, especially an army. But what he did is he, when he picked his best brigade commander, he wasn't the most successful. He, he wasn't the most flamboyant. He didn't come from a particularly smart regiment, which accounted for a lot of, you know, in the First World War. But he was the one who understood how warfare worked and had proven that. He'd outfought his position many times. And in Maxi, as an inspector of training, he found a quite fierce person who today we'd probably struggle with leadership-wise. But he was the right person to go around and visit uh, a GOC day by day. They had a 36-hour visit, at the end of which he either had breakfast and said congratulations or sacked them. And that changed behaviors. But what Haig had done is he'd specifically found the traits in his people that could do these right doctrine, understanding training, and promoting or sacking people. And that's what got me into traits, and that's what got me into leadership and understanding. And to a degree, it's why Castle is where it is. Huge lessons. And also unsung heroes of the First World War. We might have a look now at some of the wider aspects of your life, the bits that are out of uniform. You are the chairman of Army Rugby Union and you represent the Army's view on the Rugby Football Union Council. What parallels can you draw or what is distinct perhaps between leadership in the Army on the battlefield perhaps versus that on the rugby field? So the commonality is we both have a set of values that are very, very similar and we play the game or serve to lead in a very similar manner. You know, the Rugby Football Union in terms of teamwork, respect, enjoyment, disciplines and sportsmanship we can relate to those. We really can. So there's a huge commonality. I think we also share, we, we want warriors to do well. Whether it's a warrior on the battlefield or a warrior on the rugby pitch, we understand that. And both cultures have mental and physical robustness at their heart. 
What's really important, though, is, and I, I really mean this, they're both quite inclusive in that most people can join both those organizations. Of course, there's some who have disabilities or, or other things or age preclude them, but most of society can be in most of those organizations. And that's really good because we value you for how good you are, not how tall, how fast or short, or whatever you are. So that, that's, those all things have the great bond. I think what I also like is uh, Clive Woodward said it's all about thinking clearly under pressure. Uh, and that got a team to win the World Cup in 2003. And thinking clearly under pressure is probably at the heart of what we do. Because I think being a staff officer in headquarters is one thing, but what we're really employing people to do is to be in a trench whilst being shot at and lead people over the top. And thinking clearly under pressure then, great example of defining a singular point on a rugby pitch. It's a great example of doing exactly the same when you need to convince people to go into a hail of bullets. So I really enjoy those parallels. I'd also say that both organizations have had a really, really good, hardworking, charming people who understand themselves, and that's really fun. And if you look at what we've done at Twickenham, it's some great rugby, the women's and the men's games. You see all the great values of sport in the military. You see contests, you see fierce rivalry, and the whistle goes, and you pick each other up, and you pat each other on the back, and you have a beer with each other. And to be that fierce rival and then just enjoy each other's company, lots of humility in that, lots of great lessons for us. Absolutely. Do you think in leadership terms, though, rugby has a much flatter hierarchy in leadership terms than the army does? Is there any lessons the army could perhaps learn from that, whether it's in its personnel structures or how those structures, the layers in it, interact? That's a cracking question, Dean. And, and I, my first response, natural response is, is there's more layers in rugby than you might realise because you have your junior club, you have your senior club, you have professional clubs, you, know, you have England and you have the Lions, etc. There's a hierarchy. And you have your counties running it, and then you have the national governing body, uh, and then you have premiership rugby, and you have Six Nations rugby and world rugby. So there's, there's more layers than people might think. And actually, that gives us some friction. That would be in the staff structures, almost as a well, read across, have it in, within the team itself. So, so within the team itself, I'm going to be bold here. I think rugby might need to learn a bit from the army at the moment. So uh, with no reference to any particular side, I don't know if we are using leadership in rugby as well as we're using leadership in the army. So in my day, when I was a captain of a rugby team, the captain did a lot more on the pitch, made a lot more decisions. The coach wasn't involved. They didn't set the structure. And the captain was invested with that authority to kick, run, pass, whatever. I think we want to strip that away in rugby. And I think they might benefit from having it back. But that could be because professional rugby players are singular focused. It's for many reasons. But ironically, it might be we need to tip it that way. But what I learned from rugby, again, is often the leader isn't the best player. And that's really important because the leader is the leader. Yeah. We can learn from that because the leader might not be the most senior person sometimes. It might be the natural leader. If I may, as a company commander here, we had an officer cadet who had talent but was a little bit wayward, who happened to be a good rugby player. And I really wasn't certain in the second term whether we were going to commission that person. And long story short, he ended up playing for the staff team because we were short one day of a back row. And at half time, we were losing like we usually did. And the captain of the day was a very good salt major who's now a late entry major. And he was giving a bit of a half term to do it better. And this officer cadet, the most junior person, piped up and within five seconds had everybody listening to him about how we we're going to take on the game. Tactically, he was telling the salt major what he needed to do. The OC was hooking what they need to do, me what I need to do. And he was absolutely right. And not only did we go on to genuinely win the match, but at that moment I went, you have the leadership skills. You've absolutely got them. Now I've seen them. We're going to get them out of you. 
You just needed a different medium through which to show them. Exactly that. And that's the beauty of sport. Any sport, especially rugby. Absolutely. Somehow in the spare time you do find, you undertake leadership roles in your local community as chair of governors of one school and chair of the Parent Teacher Association of another. Do you think that the army prepares its people well for such roles in wider society? And conversely, perhaps have those roles developed you in a way as a leader which benefits your military career and therefore all of our military careers, given your current role? Yeah. I mean, it's a symbiotic relationship. I, I take a lot of pride and energy from my roles at, at John Hanson School in Andover and the Parent Teacher Association of Portway School, where my, where my kids are. I think what we are taught as leaders is how to get to and make good decisions. And society really values that in us. I think we're also, especially right now, really good at dealing with different views and balancing a wide spectrum of society and treating it equally and asking everybody to engage. And I think that is what the army's made of us. And I think that works back into society. As I say it, it sounds arrogant, but I think it's why that works well for me. But I also learn from it because if you don't know how the secondary education system works, it's fascinating and it's brilliant and it's full of wonderful people and the way they make their decisions has helped me. It's also just interesting to see where we are today. And in a PTA, the PTA is a real leadership challenge. Convincing busy parents to give up spare time to do things to raise money for their children should be easy, but it's really difficult. On Friday, I was standing at school doing a fun run, uh, shouting through a megaphone at my own kids to run faster and everybody else to keep running. You know, it's, it's a genuine leadership challenge. And, and, and this goes to a serious point of the more you practice leadership genuinely, the better you get. I think I'm, I would agree. I found myself almost by accident on a governing board for just over a year as well. And having challenging decisions to make, but in a different context, is just good practice. Yeah. And actually it does benefit you in both worlds. Yes, because when you come to make a hard decision in your program you're running, it's, it's not the first hard one you've made. You've, you've made some as a governor. You have tragically decided with all the evidence to either exclude or not exclude a student. With the parents or guardians saying you've gone through those hard things, and I think the more familiar you get, just it, it just becomes more natural and you make better decisions. And you're not afraid to make the decisions. And for once, we're the people in the room who don't understand all the abbreviations and acronyms. Oh, it's refreshing. <laughs> Genuinely, it's refreshing to actually be the odd one out there. It really is. Because at the end of all of our podcasts, we like to do some quickfire questions. And the first one, perhaps one of our most popular ones, is who is the best leader you have worked with and why? So that would be the commanding officer when I was a battery commander and in two-line commando, a guy called Dickie Holmby. He was good because he had that brilliant balance of technical and tactical knowledge with charm and compassion. And I looked at him and went, wow, that is what good looks like. Uh, he went on to a great career and it's the first time I saw it all in one place. And also I think I was, you know, I got to the stage where I recognized it all in one place. Great commanding officer, took a, took a good regiment and made it better. And he's just one of those inspirational people. He would talk, people would listen, and you go, I'll just do that. You know, I've come across it a few times in my career, and yeah, my goodness. Yeah, and they really stand out, those they, people. And they're, they're easy to pick out once you get asked that question. It's like a brilliant rugby player. You just know it when you see them. So brilliant rugby players generally have more time on the ball, and they make it look effortless. Brilliant leaders, commanders, again, it just seems effortless. And I think you find yourself being inspired without even realizing you're being inspired and going, yes. And uh, Dickie retired as a brigadier and is doing great things now in industry. And I was very lucky I served under him as a commanding officer. 
because again, he's one of those gatekeepers who allowed me to go on in my career because he made me better. Yeah. What is the one book, film or podcast or any other media that you have drawn most value from on leadership? So this is a little bit different, but maybe a little bit corny, but a guy called Ben Ryan coached the uh, Fijian rugby team to Olympic gold. And he wrote a book about it called Seven's Heaven. And it's not about rugby, it's about leadership. Mm -hmm. Now, Ben might say it's a book about rugby, but taking a, a country that's renowned for its rugby that was quite disparate in its approach and getting them to win the Olympic gold is not only a fairy tale story, but the way he does it when you read that book, it is brilliant in its understanding of people, relationships, culture, and change. And I read it and went, that's a great story. And then I sort of read it again, genuinely, went, that is just the essence of leadership in teams that, that wanted to work for different reasons. And, and it's a very easy read. Uh, he's off, he's left rugby now, he's in soccer, but it's, it's brilliant. And, and I like it as a leadership book because you don't know it's a leadership book until you're finished. Yeah, absolutely. So it's great fun. And looking back, what's the one bit of advice on leadership you would give to a young second lieutenant cook? Well, second lieutenant cook needed to listen more. Just simply that he needed to listen because second lieutenant cook was having a great time enjoying it all and just was charging 100 miles an hour. If second lieutenant, lieutenant, probably captain and a bit of major cook had listened a little bit more and not prejudged, I, I think that would have been a really good start. Yeah. Brigadier, thank you so much for coming to speak to us. It's been a, a fascinating insight into your career and your life and your thoughts on leadership. Um, and I've really enjoyed the chat. Dean, that's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for everything you and your team do at the Central Army Leadership because this is what I listen to in the car with a spare half an hour journey and I'm better for it. So I'm delighted to be here and I just can't thank you and the team enough. Absolute pleasure. In this episode, Brigadier Cook spoke about having a baseline of values, summarised as doing the right thing in the development of his leadership approach. It's the same baseline laid out in Army Leadership Doctrine. The Brigadier was emphatic in his belief that leadership skills can be nurtured, that leaders don't lead by right and can be improved with training, development and practice. He also explained why he believes sport has power as a broader leadership development tool. He offered that compassion is a critical trait of great leadership and told us how he had to adjust his leadership style through his career, assisted by 360 degree feedback to match the context he was operating in. It's what our doctrine recognises as a skill of applying situational leadership. The Brigadier recalled the value he gained from the civilian professional experience of those serving as reserves and by undertaking wider leadership roles in society and explained why he has absolute confidence in the leadership abilities of younger generations. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please share it with colleagues and friends and add your thoughts to the debate on social media. You may also enjoy our other podcast, The Human Advantage, which explores the more tactical experiences of leadership. It's available wherever you got this podcast from. For more information on British Army leadership or to get in touch with the team, search for the Centre for Army Leadership website or find us on all the main social media platforms. <laughs>